if you want to understand a wider history of humanity's global space age, you can't disassociate it from the thermonuclear revolution. So similar to space power, space policy um, you know, has to be looked at in a similar way that we use our political and policy language. Hello, and welcome back to Eclectic Spacewalk. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today on Conversations, we are joined by Blethen Bowen. Blethen is an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Leicester, specializing in space policy and military uses of outer space. Blethen is the author of two books, War in Space and Original Sin. He also consults on space policy for institutions, including the UK Parliament, the European Space Agency, and the Pentagon. We had an incredible discussion about the politics of outer space, how power and technology are entrenched in space policy, and tried to bring a critical perspective to the overview effect. Now, before we play the episode, I would ask you to like this video and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us grow and reach more people, as well as continue to have more interesting discussions with eclectic guests. Also, tell us in the comments what your favorite part of the talk was and who we should invite on next. Now, onto the conversation. What were your earliest interests? Like, what were you the most curious about when you were growing up? Um, I, I watched a lot of space documentaries uh, growing up, a lot of um, popular science stuff about black holes and stars and planets and all that, and also watched a lot of sci-fi films. So I grew up with uh, Star Wars on, on VHS and uh, watched plenty of The Next Generation uh, before watching The Simpsons uh, at okay. MIT time. Um, <laughs> and um, so so I always sort of liked stuff in space and play lots of computer games as well that okay. have various space themes. Um but then the way I got into this particularly was that um, I did my bachelor's degree in international politics at Aberystwyth University in West Wales, um, which uh, is also is uh, the birthplace of the discipline, having the first chair in international politics in the world, oh, cool. um, founded in 1919. Um, so I did my, my bachelor's degree and all my subsequent degrees there as well. But during my bachelor's degree, I strayed into war studies or strategic studies and intelligence studies, found that particularly interesting. And then when you get into modern warfare or intelligence history, you can't really ignore uh, the use of satellites and space technology in, in those aspects. So especially looking at modern warfare, you can't ignore the role of space technology in uh, America's wars since well, the 1980s. Also, I thought it seems that many people have ignored what's been going on in space when doing all sorts of military and uh, military history analyses of you know the last 40, 50 years uh, and strategic analysis. So, um, so I, I realized then that I could do space as a topic within yeah. what I was doing academically and what I was starting to develop some kind of expertise in really and it all fall from there so um, every time I could set my own assignment um, or essay topic I did something and space or in space so my master's module on European um, European security. It was basically European security and space, <laughs> etc. Um, yeah. So so and then I I did a PhD on space power theory. Then also at Aberystwyth, and then yeah, then somehow managed to find a job in academia. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, one of the few apparently nowadays, you know, to keep one at least. Uh, so it's a I tough guess, market. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Let's just, yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess then before space, we'll, we'll get into that. Kind of w- tell us a little bit about maybe what uh, first drew your interest of international relations though. I mean, was it just kind of the the play of in nation states? Was it interesting um, technological development or something like what was, what kind of drew you into that first? I guess what made me choose to do international politics uh, f- for my bachelor's degree was mm-hmm. uh, the fact that I really enjoyed the um, uh, the interwar period of the 1930s um, and the diplomacy and international history, really, um, of okay. of Europe and the the you know the um, the politics leading to the the Second World War, really, um, and particularly in in um, history A levels in, in the UK, uh, many schools teach um, uh, British policy of appeasement uh, okay. with uh, Neville Chamberlain. Um, so, so that and uh, sort of that sort of like geopolitics, I suppose, uh, between those countries got me interested in sort of international politics, really. And um, so, so that really is I, the one thing I remember. Anyway, I'm sure there are other things as well, but I always had an interest in military things. So I played a lot of strategy games growing up. Okay. I played a lot of Command and Conquer, Red Alert, um, Age, and, of Empires uh, yeah, Age, Age of Empires Two, Age of Empires Two. Okay. Yes, yes, but. <laughs> Red, Command and Conquer Red Command Alert Conquer Red had a Alert very good backstory to it, an <laughs> alternate history, you know, an alternate, uh, well, an alternate World War II really yes. that happens between, um, you know, um, a different Europe uh, between communists and capitalists uh, without nuclear weapons as well until the very end of the game. So, um, so uh, yeah, those sort of what, what pushed me into doing international politics and yep. war, war studies and strategy. Okay. And then so so up until now, I mean, you're a, a pro- associate professor of international relations at the University of Leicester, specializing in space policy and military uses of outer space. So before I guess we get into much of the content, maybe let's just at a high level, like how do you kind of um, think about teaching, I guess, in a professorship, like, you know, and, and teaching students maybe how to think instead of what to think, like, how do you kind of navigate those tensions, obviously, in a different academic world than maybe when uh, the last couple, you know, decades. Um, so how how do you kind of uh, approach teaching uh, in, in that regard at, at maybe a high level? And then maybe we can get into the specifics here in a minute. That's a tough question, really. Um, yeah. Um, for, for those in academia, you'll know that training is very light. Yeah. <laughs> but but that reflects Give it a nice go, well. you know? <laughs> yes. Um, well, you know, that but that reflects the privilege of the academy in most countries where yeah. there is the academic freedom. And also when it comes to the subject, especially for research active institutions and people and academics, you know, like myself, like beyond us, there's nobody else that's actually qualified to tell us what we should be teaching. It's very yeah. much a collaborative thing that you develop with your colleagues especially when it comes to core modules because everybody mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know has their own particular ideas of what needs to be core materials um but th- that's always sort of a core development within wh- whichever institution you're in um, but when it comes to your specialist modules of course um if you do offer them um then yeah it's very much you have almost complete freedom in terms of the curriculum uh, really and um uh, and you know and getting and also teaching certain skills as well so um you know universities especially in the UK i can't speak for for other other countries but in the UK there's an emphasis on you know skills as well as a subject um being part of mandatory curriculums now yeah. um but yeah i mean that, that tension in terms of how to think and and what to think i mean 
it's easier to teach the subject matter to students, just tell them interesting things to think about, and then they'll think <laughs> about it in their own way. Yeah. Um, um, I, I don't like telling students how to think. I mean, they can ask for, you know, my thoughts and how I do things, but I know that's not how everyone does things. And yep. everyone has their own way. You know, I guess I'm quite chaotic in that sense, in that just sit down, read and think and talk about it. And people have their own ways of doing that. And I think it's about reassuring students who have you know, that imposter syndrome. And, you know, and that's, I, I still have that. That never goes away. Um, You know, if you're not a massively egotistical person, you know, you never get rid of imposter syndrome. But to say, it's fine if you're a slow reader, just give yourself the time. Um, If, if you end up reading things more closely, but you read fewer things, that's fine. You just have to adapt your work to reflect that quality mm-hmm. of your work. And People who do that pick up on different things, and yeah. um, you know our our marking and assessments, you know, reflect that because we can tell when somebody's read something really closely, or they've just done a scattershot approach uh, to 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 their work. So, um, yeah, so so I I just try to make the subject engaging and interesting, and try to make the students as eager to read and find out more about it, or or talk and think about it, and. The learning skills or how to think will, I hope, follow from a natural enthusiasm in an interesting subject. Um, yeah. At least that's my hope. But uh, um, I mean, module evaluations are fairly positive. So I think I'm getting it right most of the time. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Good to hear. Well, I would uh, last semester, I took a class, Introduction to Science and Technology Policy, and I really loved it. And that was, again, some of the spurring of all this kind of conversation. And one of the things that our professor did, uh, Sebastian Hoffenhauer, if he's listening, uh, basically, we, we talked about a lot about, you know, discussion afterwards, like you said. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is I read a piece in, for that class called Gollum at Large, and it was basically by Trevor Pinch. And one of the chapters was about the Patriot missile effectiveness. And super interesting of how like the public relations campaign marketing by generals was one thing, but then also the actual effectiveness rating, you know, didn't really come out for years later until someone researched it. So do you have any, I mean that, and that like spurred my moment. So I was more the student in that, in that kind of thing. Do you have any, I guess, you know, maybe specific publications or things that come to mind that maybe is uh, you get the most discussion or something, or is it maybe around topics uh, in general? Because I'm not looking for a, you know, canonical piece in the, uh, in your repertoire, but I'm assuming there's probably one or a, a, a small section that maybe garners the most discussion or the most interesting kind of things. And I don't know if you have that or not. So just wanted to, while we're here, <laughs> might as well. So, well, I guess in my own specialist field of, um, you know, astropolitics, uh, really, um, the the one I mean a, a book that I assign that generates the most opinions usually is um, Everett Dolman's Astropolitik, uh, so yeah. with a with a K on the end. Okay. Um, mainly because the arguments are very easy to understand, so that's always a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's is well written. Um, and is very contentious as well so mm, students okay. often end up disagreeing with it but then you usually have students saying actually the logic is actually very good and they can understand why the argument will be made yep. um so that tends to set the cat amongst the pigeons mm-hmm. in in class quite a bit um so yeah so uh, I, that is that is a, an essential reading <laughs> on both my space <laughs> politics modules and you know and and it's a demonstration of you know effective theory but you could completely disagree with it 
Ah, um, okay. on so many levels, but you still need to engage with it because you're better off having engaged with it than not. Yeah, right. So then I guess that this is where we kind of can shift gears and more um, talk about like kind of the meat of your research and stuff. But I think it, it, it'd be helpful to maybe ground some people because, uh, I mean, I've been reading it. You, you're kind of obviously kind of uh, specialized in this. What can we kind of, I guess, maybe have a starting point? Would it be to start like historically how society maybe viewed space? And then we can kind of go into what is astropolitics, space power and stuff like that. Um, I think that might be a good grounding point in historically like what what has you know society as a whole viewed space as like as a starting you know the, i know the international relations space security space warfare strategy all those kind of come in and maybe you can just riff a little bit but what should we kind of before we get into the the real deep down what is something that we can kind of ground ourselves in uh of of historically beforehand well that question you asked is massive <laughs> yeah I, sorry for yeah. no no i mean you know i can i can sort of answer that and see where we end up. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the, the different perspectives of, you know, what is the last 60 years of humanity space age and mm-hmm. like how do people think about it? Um, because the perception in popular media is and popular history is not actually the bulk of the important stuff that's happened in space. And maybe that's the juxtaposition that was kind of maybe more uh, or the tension I was more getting onto is like maybe that that exact thing of the mainstream kind of thing in popular culture, the right stuff and all that kind of baggage that comes with, um, you know, those decades of ex- space stuff. Um, maybe that. Yeah, maybe it's more like what is the most cliche thing about space, you know, is we're all in this happy-go-lucky collaboration club and we're putting it together because I guess uh, the International Space Station is one of the easiest examples of that Mm -hmm. is, oh, well, we put, you know, so many countries and so many components and all that. And then it's the crown jewel of collaboration among humanity, et cetera. That's the cliche. So maybe we knock that down. Maybe we start there and then knock it down. Okay. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, so, um, so I guess then let's move on to exactly then what is your like, what is astropolitics? So, quote, this is in your book, um, and, I, and I really love this, and it's a back-to-back uh, uh, sentence, so I really like the, the the tension. Space needs to be discussed by everyone, not just those involved in pushing uh, new space technologies into existence or those who stand to gain from it. So there's a lot of kind of stuff of astropolitics, but one of the things in your books that, co- that come across is that it's not for everyone. Right. Like uh, the idea of 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 astropolitics is that it is a very specific number of groups of people that have come together that then influence, I guess, the politics of how we think about outer space. Now, you can, I guess, dissect that or go go into whatever uh, direction. Yeah. So um, I, I guess I would say that astropolitics is of interest to everyone. So uh-huh. to. You know what's that famous line? Um, I'll I'll, I'll uh, appropriate it for my own ends. You may not be interested in astropolitics, but astropolitics is interested in you. <laughs> um, Love it. But um, so astropolitics is of interest to everyone and should be uh, for everyone. But uh, the point I think more specifically is that space technologies uh, were not necessarily developed for the benefit of all humanity and for everyone and for the whole planet etc so that universal language that is in the outer space treaty of 1967 that is in almost every corporate 
spin about whatever space project they've got going, regardless of the actual merits of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that language about, you know, space benefits everyone, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, no, many space technologies were developed for self-interested reasons that benefited some and threatened or harmed others. Um, so, so, and that is what astropolitics is about, is investigating and talking about the 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 why and the how and the so what of everything that's happened in space and not just space science and exploration but the economic exploitation of earth orbit the construction of military infrastructure mm-hmm. in in earth, in earth orbit so those thousands of satellites whizzing around our planet um because they satisfy political and economic goals or military interests um they are designed to threaten other countries in some cases so space technology is a massive massive thing and they're developed by different countries and different people different organizations for their own reasons because it costs a lot of money mm-hmm. people only do those things for very good reasons because they could spend that money on other things instead okay and then I guess, the, so if we if we anchored ourselves in what is astropolitics next, I think we need to kind of also anchor ourselves in our, you know, three-legged stool of understanding, if you will, is what is kind of space power as well? You know, celestial geography, quote, as you said, mirrors the power relations of terrestrial politics. Really like that. Um, I think one of the biggest things that you kind of put to get put forth is that we live in a multipolar world. You know, it's, it's really space power is not, uh, maybe it's dominated by, uh, I think you used a, a group, I think the space group or something, the six kind of big. Uh, and then there's a lot of, you know, smaller countries and organizations that, that follow suit. So how can we think about space power and what that means? So the best way to think about space power is that conceptually, politically, strategically, it's the same as sea power and air power in that you're, you, you're viewing it as an, envir- an environment or a place that is used by um, you know, for well, in from my perspective, mostly by states for their own interests, political, economic, military, um, industrial, whatever, whatever you can call political interests of a state, they're using space and especially Earth orbit, um, for their own interests as they are using other environments or on, on Earth. So space is not politically special or unique in that regard. We've already been using space for military purposes and economic purposes, especially Earth orbit. So one thing that really frustrates me in commentary, especially from the past three, three years uh, with the creation of the US Space Force, is that people think that space is now being militarized when it's been militarized from day one in terms of right. the actual space age. Um, you know, the first thing to technically go into space was a V2 rocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's that's a quite a pedant point, but pedantic point. But if it wasn't for the military rationales behind rockets and satellites so for nuclear weapons delivery and spy and communication satellites for military purposes we would not have had the space age that we did um so a lot of the space science activities that people champion as you know an amazing example of what humans can do and we can be better in space those are riding on the back of massive investments by certain countries in missile and nuclear uh, technologies and that's 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 the original sin of space yeah. technology so that's what original sin really tries to hammer across in terms of the main argument or the main theme really um so 
so that that is sort of um, the key uh, a point really of original sin, and hopefully when that. Uh, it changes people's perspectives on space who are quite new to space or have only looked at space from the exploration and science angles. Yeah, yeah, well said, well said. And then we'll kind of get in more uh, into some of those things that you said, but I guess finishing off the three points is, you know, I think space policy is the other thing. Um, you quote, uh, and this is the other one that I, the, the other example that I was thinking of, what you said right back to back is uh, space is a place and not an abstract or single policy issue. Space policy is a misnomer because one policy could not govern an entire environment. So I love that you just put those back to back and it's like, it's important, but it's not a catch all. And we need to kind of like, not, I don't, I don't know if it's the Hegelian, you know, synthesis kind of deal, but like, how can we kind of think about space policy in when there's a multipolar world, we just talked about the, the space power, we just talked about uh, astropolitics, but then also you you mentioned the certain technical kind of affordances or disaffordances that sp certain technology kind of goes in one direction or the other. And I think you make a really good point um, in that uh, any space policy that's been happening has to be taken into account with this international anarchy uh, international system that's based on anarchy. So maybe touch on that a little bit uh, in, sure, in terms sure. of space policy. Yeah. So similar to space power, space policy, um, sh you know, has to be looked at in a similar way that we use our political and policy language. And the thing is, states and countries don't have a sea policy. There's no air policy. So <laughs> space policy sounds a bit weird, but it's a term that stuck. And for for abbreviating my own statements and comments and bios in many places, I say space policy because it means a certain thing to the community I'm speaking to mm -hmm. at the time. So but the problem is, though, is that as because space is a place where you have military activities, industrial, economic, commercial activities, um, civil infrastructure activities, um, scientific activities, exploration activities, everyone has their own idea of what they mean by space policy. Because you talk to loads of Americans, they'll think that space policy is just about what NASA's doing mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Congress's oversight of NASA. Um, whereas they never mention anything about the pentagon or the intelligence community or uh american space industry or foreign policy and space so what the u.s is doing at the united nations for example to do all that uh, in terms of norms and laws uh, international laws in space so space policy can mean all of those and i think only as a top level phrase it can only make sense because you have to burrow down in, into the details with, with space policy because you have to give it substance because you know i'm not massively interested in um the finer points of space industrial strategy and policy right. <laughs> i know it's important but it's not my expertise mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's military and security policy when it comes to space is what i'm very much interested in um so so that so that's 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 the the sort of the, the space as a place and not a policy issue because you have to be clear in communicating and the scientists and space science enthusiasts have to accept that space is being used by other communities as well mm -hmm. and have and have as much of a right to claim space as their thing as as you do in the same way that you know you can talk about naval power 
at sea and sea power in that sense nobody's really talking about marine science right right, right um right, right. only insofar as mapping <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, nobody's yeah. nobody cares about what marine biologists are doing when you're talking about <laughs> the u.s navy squaring off against the the pla navy uh in the south china sea in the same way then that you have people like saying the sky is falling in because china's got a robot on the far side of the moon with a potato on it um worried that this is eroding american dominance yep in military powers like no <laughs> well a lot of recent st- news i think it was because I, I don't know the nasa administrator within the last week was kind of worried about that and fomenting a little bit about like oh man that you know china could could eclipse us or whatever and it's this kind of soft power propaganda in the in the media. Well, that's that's just to basically try and get congress to give him more money really, uh, for, yeah. for, for nasa it's, it's just part of the discourse and the language really and you know it'll work on some politicians and some media outlets uh but um but yeah so you know, people need to separate the different areas of activity because there are areas where countries that are threatening each other militarily on Earth, assuming there's no war actually going to happen, they might still actually be able to coordinate or deconflict scientific activities because they're not that important. Right. I know many people will hate me for saying that, but um, the protection of Taiwan, for example, for the United States is far more important and sensitive than making sure that American and Chinese rovers don't crash to each into each other on the moon. <laughs> There's no strategic impact um, of, you know, not cooperating on the moon or things going wrong on the moon. It's it's quite harmless, to be honest. Oh, interesting. So so yesterday I talked with Fred Sharman and he was talking about how there's something in the laws or the treaties that basically like you have to almost like um you are required to give aid in space or something if you're like there's there's some rules of like more co- collaborative kind of efforts in the laws so right now i just kind of want to but as we've kind of grounded our you know three points before we get into your book how can we think also about scale in this because i know in your introduction you you put to kind of you know a couple pages about the different orbits so i don't know if it's maybe interesting to go into a little bit of of what kind of scale we're talking about because it really is at the level of say nation states. Uh, and then uh, I think you allude a little bit to possible creations of supranational organizations of sorts. And so maybe we should just talk about that a little bit of, well, what is the dominant kind of, uh, what is the dominant nature or what is the baseline that we're talking about here in terms of space policy, space law, those kind of things? Because there's no overarching supranational organization or government that's deciding these. It's kind of happening all in as as is like we're 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 constant we're putting the track down before we're you know the 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 train is going i guess you could say um well it's just an extension of the international system so you mentioned the anarchic order before and space is just an extension of that and and so is anything that we decide to do collectively as 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 a species politically so there's there's i mean there's potential for supranational organizations to take maybe more responsibility and mm-hmm um jurisdiction but un law applies in outer space and on other celestial bodies so moon asteroids uh, planets etc but those treaties are very you know they're they're quite aspirational and Mm -hmm. it's about sort of encouraging states to behave in certain ways Um, and there's always room for interpretation especially in international laws as well um so like basically, if yeah, if somebody requests help, if if you know, and you're able to help, then you should have a good reason to not do so. 
Mm-hmm. Um, court, you know, to to try and not violate the treaty, mm-hmm. but um, but then if you are violating the treaty or not, again, it will be a matter of a political and legal legal debate. Um, if you look at particular parts of the Outer Space Treaty, it talks about refraining from causing environmental damage, things like that. But everybody's polluting Earth orbit, so you know, Article Nine of the Outer Space Treaty is already being violated. You know, according to some interpretations of Article Nine about the Outer Space Treaty, about modifying certain environments. Uh, so, you know, but what it comes back to is, is political will to try and enforce rules, really, whatever countries agree to. And you mentioned the you know big six um, space powers um, earlier. So if the United States, uh, the European Union, Russia, China, Japan and India are able to agree on things in space, then most other countries would have very little option but to fall in line, really, uh, because everyone else wants to cooperate with those countries or buy and sell in their markets uh, as well. So if those six are able to agree on perhaps a new version of the Moon Treaty Mm -hmm. that will govern how resources can be used by scientific outposts there and whether they allocate uh, landing sites in a certain way if those six can agree they can they can wrap it up between themselves and it'll be up to the other countries to try and make sure that they get what they want out of that deal as well um so you know a lot of the global south would have to think very carefully about what india would be doing in that um because as we've seen in 1976 with the bogota declaration india and china were you know, seen by many as global South states in the 1970s. Ah, yes. But equatorial states try to claim sovereignty into infinity above their territories, so into the geostationary orbital belt, so that countries would stop parking satellites above their territories in geostationary orbit. Mm. Um, everyone ignored them, including India and China, um, because they didn't want equatorial countries to start taking up prize orbital slots um in in geostationary orbit so uh so but those countries are also competing uh to influence those other countries as well so you'll see in the artemis accords that the united states has managed to get more global south countries to sign up to the artemis accords as part of participation in the future Mm -hmm. lunar program with the united states so so and, and those are reflections of the anarchic order because what that really means is beyond the most powerful states in the international system, and what power means is a massive area of debate, but mm-hmm. the most powerful states um, basically have to police the system themselves because there, there's nobody above the state to enforce um, you know, anything that you might call a collective will. So if the United Nations Security Council rules that we need to invade somewhere to prevent genocide or something it's the un security council's biggest military powers that have to commit the resources to do it because the united nations doesn't have an army of its own it has contributions to its forces from national or state militaries Uh, and space is is part of that system it's not separate from it um and again another point of frustration i have is many people think that things happen differently in space it's like, no, no, all those treaties were products of the power political interests of the time. The Outer Space Treaty allowed the superpowers and the other powers 
that signed it to carry on doing what they wanted to do in space, which was to build and deploy military satellites and to continue um, accessing space to deliver their nuclear weapons through it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, because the outer space regime didn't really ban anything important from a military perspective from being done or useful from being done, it's been one of the most popular treaties ever in the UN system. Wow. That's super interesting because obviously it shows the interrelatedness of um, all of the kind of not just power relations, but also historical things that you kind of touch in your book about some of the uh, equatorial regions and how, you know, colonization and all that kind of stuff. It, there, there's a direct through lines with that. Maybe we'll get into that. But um, so before we talk about original sin, uh, let's talk about your first book, War in Space, Strategy, Space Power, Geopolitics. We don't have to get into it too deep because I know you kind of, it's a succession, I, I think of, or, or right. And it's also book. all theory. Okay, you. okay, okay. Well, <laughs> my, my, my question is then maybe as a writer, then what what did you kind of maybe learn the most uh, or find the most interesting, surprising, maybe from writing the first book to the second book? Something about maybe the process you can riff on uh, a little bit, because obviously if you write two books about it, you go from theory into normativity and stuff. So how was that kind of what was your thinking with all that? Well, the, the first book was the book based on my PhD thesis. So mm-hmm. it was all, it was always going to be quite unique in that regard, because Every, I mean, assuming I'm going to do more books after this now, they're going to be books, book projects from the start, mm-hmm. whereas a PhD thesis is different to a book. Um, sure. And as I keep telling my own PhD students <laughs> here in Leicester, um, and it's very difficult to describe what that is if you haven't done a PhD thesis and then done the book based on it. Um, so... So writing Original Sin was quite different in that it was a book from the start, but also geared for a wider audience Mm -hmm. to people who read a lot of politics, history or technology or interested in space in general. People who read maybe Financial Times, The Economist um, uh, or a lot of technical magazines. Um, So, 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 yeah, so I'm not sure if I learned a lot for the book writing for the second book from the first, because... I had the PhD thesis mostly written and it was about amending that and adding and taking away a couple of chapters uh-huh. I see. Uh, here here and there, really. But I learned a lot in terms of writing for a wider audience for the second book for Original Sin. Um, and I'm not sure how successful I've been with that. Um, I, I guess I'll see hopefully over the next year as reviews hopefully start coming in. Um, but I know it's easier to read than my first book. So it's all relative. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I will, I will commend you for that because it is well written and very accessible. Um, but you, you. do um, kind of go in and and don't you, uh, you you don't pull punches about big words. You know, you're you're plenty, you're throwing them in there, but it, but the, it's well concise and and, and reads very well. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the especially the introduction and conclusion. Um, that's all I've really been able to get through so far. But then very powerful and kind of explains everything very pithily. Um, so yeah, so congrats on that. And definitely we're going to be waiting for U.S. people uh, to to get their hands on it soon. Apparently, um, well, my, my attitude was, I mean. If people can read the intro conclusion and get the gist of it, that's fine. Because I know yes. that's what a lot of speed readers and a lot of people press for time do. Um, the the first book, War in Space, is very theoretical. It's it's a it's a very niche book about military thought mm. as it applies to outer space and what I think works in terms of military thought. And so it does a lot of 
you know, Karl von Clausewitz, <laughs> who's ah, a okay. yeah, yeah, 19th yeah. century Prussian military theorist and philosopher, uh, but also uh, Raoul Castex, a French uh, naval theorist and admiral in the 1920s and 30s, um, uh, quite a few British military theorists, but also Russian and a bit of um, Indian and Chinese naval thought as well, really. Um, so that just puts a lot of concepts and ideas together, which is more geared towards other academic researchers interested in military strategy in space, but also for professional military education as well. So, Ooh, um, so you know, I've done presentations to the US Space Force on that book. And yeah, that's not for a wide audience because it's very, <laughs> you know, very specific military ideas and military doctrine, um, which, uh, yeah, is just not that exciting to uh to, to most people who don't care what some dead prussian said about things and how that can help us think about space today and but it's, it was still a challenge for many practitioners because they want to be told the right answer to something uh, and yeah. i just turn up and i'm like yeah i don't know what the right answer is to your specific problem but i can give you a set of ideas that may help you think about them in a better way and come to your own answer about your particular situation. And I lost them five minutes ago because they just <laughs> want an answer. Right, 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 right. Some they audiences are better than others, but you know, it is a challenge. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, moving on from that. So now we get to the the big part of this conversation, uh, your book, uh, original sin you can't really tell. Oh yeah, there it is in focus, uh, original sin, power technology and war in outer space. So you did a nice, uh, tweet thread summarization. So I took some of this because it's easier for me to parlance out. Um, but basically three parts. So, and we'll go into them in, in more depth. So the military, the militarized genesis of the global space age, uh, how essential military economic satellite technologies matured, matured from 1970 to today and what's realistic and what's not in space warfare. So one of the things I guess in, in my, in my, uh, summarization for me, so you can kind of pick at this is, is, is I basically came up with, uh, another specific thing for space policy is any space policy has to be grounded in the reality of nuclear warheads within an anarchic international system. So that's basically the starting place that I got to is, wow, you really need to start from historically what is on the table. I guess you could say nuclear war and within an economic or nuclear warheads uh, existing within an anarchic uh, international system. So you say the approach you took was um, to push a global perspective and avoid yet another US dominated space book. I like that because the U.S. isn't special, so it's good to always uh, do that. And then space has always been militarized since the start of the space age, the original sin of space technology. So a, a lot going on there, but the biggest thing is that, you know, any anything to do with space, uh, any technology really has to deal with its uh, militaristic and kind of um, – uh, use cases, I guess, militarization is, is the biggest thing. So let's just walk through the, the first argument. So space technologies have not been developed for the benefit of all mankind. Geopolitics already extends to Earth orbit thanks to space technologies, original sin, where competitive military, economic, and political interests drive space tech development. So I know that that's a lot, a wrong intro, but maybe, you know, you can riff a little bit about kind of the overarching thesis or kind of how you took an approach. And then we'll just get into the, the first argument and why that's kind of important yeah I, I guess part of that came from my frustrations with international relations as a field um and you'll see a pattern developing here i just get frustrated and angry with things and then that but then you write and it's argument. good but yeah <laughs> i guess everything's done after spite i suppose um and anger yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> about people getting it wrong no um no so 
I was an undergraduate student in the in the late two thousand, so two thousand seven, eight, nine, ten, mm-hmm. and you know at the time in vogue in IR was the state is dead. It's all about transnational forces and oh nuclear strategy. Oh, that's so old hat. That's so archaic. You know that's not important anymore. Um, you know despite everything that was going on with um Iran and North Korea and their mm-hmm. nuclear programs at the time. Um, and you know, we well look at where we are today with that. And so, so when when it was a point that I wanted to make, where I think it's especially important when we when if you want to understand a wider history of humanity's global space age, you can't disassociate it from the thermonuclear revolution. Mm. That i'm not one to think that technology determines everything in world politics you know technologies you know are far more complicated than that but if there is a technology you know technologies that i think fundamentally changed the world it's nuclear weapons and or thermonuclear weapons so fusion bombs and mm-hmm. um long range ballistic missiles those two i think fundamentally changed world politics in the in the way major powers dealt with each other um much of the rest of the world i think were less affected uh by that and uh my colleague cameron hunter alester has uh, convinced me of that point that yeah, the thermonuclear revolution is really about major power interactions or how the leading states or the great powers however you want to call them they can't go to war anymore at least not intentionally because they're probably gonna not survive um and not just politically not survive but literally most people are going to die your infrastructure is going to be vaporized and in a matter of hours if not less so you're looking at like a permadeath uh or or a, or a nuclear death and campbell craig writes a lot about that so i i think that is a fundamental reality of global politics that i think a lot of people don't want to dwell on which you know i, I can understand why because yeah it's not pleasant and you know it's a horrible reality that 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 we live in but this is a really fundamental technology to understand space technology as well because nuclear space and missile is, is well is, is a triad or a, or a, or a trinity to, to use a clausewitzian phrase um they're so closely interlinked in how those technologies came about um so the nuclear age or the thermonuclear age really brought about the space age as as we know it and that's the original sin and um and and that's pushing back against the utopian um you know holding hands across the oceans attitude many people have to space technology mm-hmm. as a totality when no 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 there's so much about the space age that is actually not that good uh, that is actually quite worrying that is actually you know actually you know made many problems worse whether it's you know um nuclear war or um continuing imperial practices in the 60s and the 70s and building launch sites in imperial territories or or you know colonized uh, lands so you know there's a lot of bad stuff going on and people haven't really paid much attention to it outside of the the niche area of space history space politics and um, increasingly um, anthropology in space as well yeah, and and I guess one of the things to to get out of that or go more into depth about is um kind of in my forte is this science and technology studies and what uh, you've said uh, Dr. McCarthy says about tech quote it's not that it develops outside of human agency but outside of some humans agencies 
the loft uh, in quote the lofty for all mankind language is not helpful or accurate uh very much so i mean the if 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 you know, space tech has an original sin of its militarized heritage, and then some particular human agencies are used to develop it and use it, et cetera. Well, then we're going to get a skewed or at least a narrow, uh, at the very least, way of thinking about it, way of implementing it. So maybe uh, you can just talk a little bit more about some of those affordances of tech of of that, you know, it really comes from international politics, the economy and industrial centers. You know, there's, there's a lot of things about the space age that are not about, you know, as you say, not boots or rovers on other planets, but, you know, where is this stuff being developed? Who is developing it and why? So maybe we can just riff a, a touch more on that before we get into the second point. Yeah. So those big six space powers, you know, when we talk about space power uh, in terms of the the physical, the material aspects of it, it's about satellites mostly and the ground infrastructure uh, so the the stations that communicate with the satellites and take their data down, uh, and also the peripherals that use satellite data, and of course then the rockets that give you the access there. Yeah. So when I think about what's important in our shared space age, the moon, the planets, asteroids, they're not strategically important, as in they are they are not militarily or economically important. Earth orbit very much is, and that's where everything about the international system is playing out as before. Because the moon is just not very useful (laughs) and very far away and very expensive to get to, you can maybe do things a bit differently there if you just treat it much like Antarctica, where it's really just about putting scientists there and various surveys and, you know, probes or whatever, Um, because... Yeah, there's not much to be gained from selfish behavior there um, until there's something of value there. And then the rest of then humanity's political military baggage will follow. Um, yeah. So, but those space industries, though, you have to see them as just another aspect of high technology industry around the world. So, the global north, or, you know, the, and not just, but including the former imperial powers, they, have leads in this you know they develop these technologies much for much earlier than the decolonizing world and the decolonized world and the global south but notably china and india have um caught up um and they've invested in those strategic technologies so rockets satellites ground stations and other things um since the 1960s themselves so they are you know, big, especially China, big space powers today because of those long-term investments. But a lot of other countries thinking, especially of Latin America, um, Africa, Middle East, um, and include, and now, you know, these days, they're the post-Soviet space, especially Central Asia, but Southeast Asia as well. Um, the, the, The global North versus South developed the developing um, richer or you know poorer countries, whichever terms you want to apply, those techno economic industrial politics of the haves and the have nots are playing out in the space industries yeah. around the world as well, where it's the richer countries just are there first and they start determining patterns of development for others. Um, now, 
that's very broad. Many countries do have specific partnerships with some countries, which involves developing indigenous capabilities in certain countries. Um, and I go into more detail in that in original sin in some cases. But those larger politics of inequality are there in space and just about space industry and capability in Earth orbit. Not the moon, not beyond, but just Earth orbit. And you can look at the International Telecommunications Union in the way it allocates uh, the right to use certain radio frequencies. Oh, yeah, sure. It's it's yeah. mostly on a first come first serve basis, but developing states around the world had to bandy together to get a change in the ITU to make sure that less developed states still had guaranteed access to certain radio frequencies. You know, regardless of the current state of development, because. Of course, they're going to be 20 or 30 years behind rich countries and developing exquisite communications technologies yeah. because of those historic, you know, and in many cases, ongoing legacies of uh, of, of imperialism. So, so those inequalities do factor in, in you know, that techno-economic industry in, in, in space, really. So once you start seeing space as just another part of politics and competitive techno technological industries... Um, I think space hopefully starts making a lot more sense to a lot more people. Yeah, well said. And then so moving on from, I guess, the, the militarized heritage of, of the space tech, like the second point you really say is is kind of, we, we kind of laid the groundwork for all these things about how um, it really is a specific, you know, groups of nations, specific, you know, uh, value systems laden in. But then you get to the second point is we also live in a global space age and the USSR and USA again, led in those kind of early, you know, Cold War years and many others uh, were uh, fairly um, strategically anonymous uh, by the end of the Cold War. But then you said many more states have done the same by today. Space is open to all states, not just the big powers. And and I, I really, I guess, let's, let's kind of unpack a little bit of that is because new technologies, you mentioned of things of like uh, Starlink, et cetera, but then all of a sudden, you know, Ukrainian dependence on that we've seen in, in the war, but then also UK's dependence on US military satellites. So maybe talk about that. And then also a huge in instance that I think has come up recently, um, not just with like the uh, Mount Lakea, um, uh, the telescope in Hawaii, et cetera, is that a lot of these things like you were kind of uh, alluding to have a very colonial past, you know, and, and, and much, very much so. And then you, you mentioned some of the work of, uh, of Alice Gorman and stuff. So uh, try to get her on the podcast at, at some point in time. But then there's there's also histories of Kenya, Australia, Kazakhstan, French Guinea that, you know, we, we've we kind of, people have probably heard about missile launches or, or, you know, whatever. But then let's kind of try and unpack that how we do live in a new kind of era. This is not the Cold War anymore, but there are tendrils of history still kind of latched on. But how can we think of you know, space is open to all states, not just the big powers. But at the same time, the big powers have a huge lead. <laughs> you know, they they have yeah. a giant lead in this. Um, I, I would disagree. I, I would, I would, I wouldn't say that we're in a in a new era. Okay, okay. Really, um, I mean, for me, the new era was, you know, nineteen uh, fifties, nineteen sixties, when thermal ah, okay. there were oh, gotcha. a lot of thermonuclear bombs gotcha. being put onto missiles, long range missiles. That was the new era, and then we're still living. Now, for me, is a new era. But okay, then, I got gotcha. you. I mean, I know the the Cold War, end of the Cold War, of course, is a very important moment, uh, absolutely. But I, I guess um, in terms of understanding the, well, maybe not multipolarity, but the plurality of mm. actors in space, it's not a, you know, 1991 is not some 
threshold or you know uh, well what's the oh i hate what's the word inflection point I hate that. <laughs> I love it um <laughs> because as i mentioned earlier you know china and india but also france britain yep. um israel um and you know many other countries you know brazil for example and argentina they were doing a lot of stuff in space during the cold war um so so it's not so 1991 is not some sort of flip and now there are loads of things happening on because but but yeah i mean that's that's that was that was a balance that was difficult to strike in the book because the united states is the most capable space power and across pretty much every measure you could probably think of i mean there'll be a couple of countries that have some very niche capabilities especially maybe space exploration you know like uh you know japan can do an asteroid landing and uh and you know I know America's just in the dart thing, so I don't know how transferable those technologies are, but yep. those are really specific and niche. But yeah. if America puts its mind to it, it'll it'll just do it and probably, you know, um quicker and better than most of the countries. Um if if it decides to funnel its resources into that as a priority. But 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 the but that doesn't I don't think that's taking away from the reality that just because a country is the most powerful doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at what everyone else is doing. Um, Maybe because it's my Welsh background speaking, but just because you're a small country doesn't mean you're not worth looking at or investigating or speaking about or understanding or engaging with. Um, Like I'm used to the idea of small states before it became a fad in IR. (laughs) You know, it's like, yes, there are small states. Some of us knew this already uh, because we're from them. Literally, yeah. Uh, You know, or, you know, Britain is a small state, you know, I'm from a small country. I'm not necessarily from a small state, Uh, but Britain is a small, smallish middling state in space, you know, and it has to find its way amongst much bigger powers and of course it's now outside the european union um so yeah just because somebody's more powerful doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at others and it takes away a really important part of politics i think which is to engage with the i mean this is not always the correct word but the minority view or (laughs) the other (laughs) whoever you are there's always another um and um it's like yeah power shouldn't determine what we look at necessarily um it's it's just one thing among many that we need to consider when looking yeah. at something so you know you want to look at small states in space absolutely and there's some good research coming out on that now and uh, um so th- another challenge to doing that was that one because of my language constraints um in, in terms of writing original sin and researching for it um the english language sources are of course dominated by the united states um, because they're the biggest, they have done the most, and they have been the most transparent about it as well. So whilst it's true that America probably has the most secrets, they also have shared the most information okay. as well, because they've done <laughs> so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas, of course, I can't really access primary documents in 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 uh, you know or secondary literature in in, in other languages. Um, and you'll be surprised to learn that there's not a lot written in Welsh on space uh, policy. Um, but uh, you know, so Welsh doesn't really <laughs> give me any new insights there. Um, but so many examples I had were American, so I really had to go and try and find and then highlight examples of space technologies and stories that 
didn't revolve around the US. So um, so I tried to tell the SATCOM story by looking at India, for example, um, and its um, cooperation with NASA on the uh, site, uh, SITE, uh, Satellite Television Programme, okay, yeah. and the way that was used by the Indian government to push forward certain ideas about development and technology and how certain elites in the Indian political community sort of had their own ideas as to what counts as success, for example. Mm-hmm. So the work of Asif Siddiqui uh, is is really really useful there. Um, so so yeah, so that was a real challenge, and I, I yeah I don't see that you know a country is more effective, therefore it's not there's there's no global element to it, and you don't have to be a space power or a or interested in doing things in space to be affected by the space age. So you mentioned the imperial and colonial aspects. So, you know, if you're one of the local communities in Kuru in French Guiana, you've been directly impacted by the space age, even though, um, you know, statistically, you know, your uh, background, um, you know, people of your community are just not involved in the actual work of space at all. You've just been displaced by it. You can look at the um, Chagos Islanders from Diego Garcia, moved out by the British to make way for an American military base of which there were, in in which there was satellite communication systems, including systems that supported the Apollo missions. Um, So there's that imperial legacy of people being on the you know bad receiving end of space technology so so it's so we need to look at you know things beyond the companies or the countries doing things in space and looking at people affected by space mm-hmm. um and so it's getting away from just looking at the big and the powerful doing stuff and that space is open to everyone and everyone should have an interest in it if they're interested in technology and politics on the largest scale there is yeah. And then so the third moving to the third point, um, as space is so useful, war follows the ultimate, the quote, ultimate high ground is not a useful metaphor for thinking about the impact of space power on military strategy. Instead, it's more of a literal or coastal zone. So that thought that was super interesting, the cosmic, uh, you know, coastline or coastal zone, I think you you, you said. Um, so let's maybe and I think you you kind of mentioned this in uh, about your previous book about military strategy and high ground thinking. So maybe go into thread, you know, kind of the needle between that. But a lot of it comes from you know, it encourages mechanic, uh, mechanistic, overly abstract, fatalistic, and linear thought when strategies and tacticians need to be creative, responsive, technically specialized, and unpredictable. So uh, very interesting in terms because that was kind of always the thing where I thought that people and militaries, et cetera, were interested in space because that's the ultimate high ground. So tell us why that's maybe not exactly the case. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the ultimate high ground idea, um, which is, you know, in U.S. Space Force doctrine now, I think, uh, or I think they they say it's uh, a high ground. I'm, I can't remember if you use ultimate or not, but anyway, um, I I think I mean I can see its value in terms of public communications. I yeah. mean, you know, when it sounds great, you know, if you like the drama of it all, um, and you know, and it's quite intuitive to understand because, yeah, it's like a vantage point where, you you know, you get good observation from and you can put lots of useful things up there. You know, so, so you know, there's a sort of a surface quality to it and I can see why it's being used. But but the problem is, is that it has real limitations that aren't very useful mm-hmm. to then the professionals behind closed doors who need to be doing these things and training people um, because, 
it falls foul of a classic problem that our old friend Karl von Clausewitz, our Prussian military thinker, warned against in his own time, where too often um, what Clausewitz would call dull strategists, um, they think that having good positions is having a good strategy. Yeah. When a, a good position is only a means to an end. The end is winning a battle, winning the engagement, and then winning the war as a result of winning successive engagements. Um, holding the higher ground is not a war plan. It's not a strategy. It's, yeah, it's a way to describe some, you know, it's basically saying we get advantages from controlling Earth orbit mm-hmm. and having our satellites up there and stopping our enemy, whoever they may be, from doing the same in a time of open warfare. In the same way that at sea, the US Navy is going to destroy any hostile enemy ships it finds uh, in the important places. And also the US Air Force will clear the skies of enemy fighters and enemy air defences and bombers, etc. in a time of open warfare. Space is the same, conceptually the same. So this is very much what my first book goes into real detail and depth about. Um, The coastline idea, I think, is better because it highlights the connections um, and the intimate um, effects, really, that go both ways between one environment and the other. So Earth orbit mostly begins at 100 kilometers altitude. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the rule of thumb most people use. Uh, there's no sort of legal definition of where space begins, but 100 kilometers, give or take a few cases, is is where it begins. But then, you know, it goes up to about 40,000 kilometers in terms of where the highest flying useful satellites for economic or military purposes orbit beyond that there's nothing of interest for the military strategist uh, to be concerned with none of that is far away from earth especially when you look at weapon systems that use lasers or radio frequencies to do their damage or their effects they travel at the speed of light their effects are instantaneous and they can be based on earth that shoot up into space so like coastal guns shooting out at sea you can have lots of stuff on the planet that can cause problems for satellites in space but you can also have specialized vessels in coastal waters that can attack other coastal traffic like you can have specialized orbital vehicles that can do things to other satellites like um you know loiter be ready to throw shrapnel at them to just make a mess uh, or uh, to do specialized localized area jamming um now there are pros and cons to both planetary weapons and space-based weapons mm-hmm. or terrestrial mm-hmm. weapons there are pros and cons there's no easy solution to any sort of potential threat but it's a very confined environment as well some parts of earth orbit are really congested there's loads of satellites you know hundreds of satellites sharing the same altitudes and the same orbital paths um and and that can resemble a very busy coastal or you know inland strait mm. not mm-hmm. an open mm-hmm. ocean where traffic mm-hmm. can go all sorts of alternate mm-hmm. routes so a coastal environment is very constrained and is nearby to other environments as well. So, so, so that for me is about giving idea and a perspective that then other people hopefully can use to then go and figure out how to deal with the problems that they have. It's not saying space is the ultimate high ground. It's like, well, that doesn't really tell us much other than 
we have advantages from having things there. The trouble with the high ground is that if it's an obvious advantage, a, a thinking opponent will do everything they can to nullify that advantage. What do you do then? <laughs> so yeah. if if you have a very good hill, the enemy's just going to go around it. <laughs> you need a strategy to exploit that hill as well, because you're not just going to sit on a hill and do nothing to win the battle. Right, or right, right. Thing. You have to make it relevant to your wider war plan. You have to make sure that the battles you fight actually achieve the political goals of the war. Um, so the same is true with space. And the coastal environment is there because uh, is a good analogy because it's about the support you get from space for terrestrial warfare. Mm -hmm. So space systems make modern military forces far more effective, far more capable, more survivable, more mobile, more alert, um, and easier to command and control as well. So if you take out en enemy satellites, they lose a lot of uh, those advantages from space. But that's, again, a means to an end, not an end in itself. You have to make that relevant to the war. And the military thinkers talking about coastal warfare or continental maritime strategies, they were trying to explain to land-based thinkers, this is how sea power is useful in your mm. land war. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that those of us doing space and the Space Force in particular now in the United States, they have to go and fight their budget battles in the Pentagon, explaining to the people doing the terrestrial environments, this is how space helps you. This is why we need the money to do these things. And this is why, why we might need your help to take out some things because we might lose these satellites and therefore you need to help us, help us help you. It's about that interaction that you don't get with that ultimate high ground or even the oceanic blue water expanse view of space because everything's just in earth orbit we haven't gone very far physically right 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 well so so i guess it's going a little deeper though so as space is so useful war follows well i mean you we, we talked very broadly and i and i love it of how like tactics and things like that but i guess just to kind of have some fun, if you will, with this is like, what exactly does, I mean, to my knowledge, I haven't heard of any particular like known engagement of like space warfare or whatever. You may know some other things, but like, what exactly does that exactly look like? I mean, is there, you know, space Marines with guns or lasers and and like that, that kind of thing of sci-fi, or is it more like sabotage guerrilla warfare? But then also, I know you've written a little bit about space debris and the, the possibility of like the Kessler syndrome. Cause I mean, you got to also know and understand if you blow up a satellite, well, then that might be not very good for your own satellites because of how the orbits work and all that. So can we kind of unpack a little bit from the most ridiculous to maybe the most you know nuance of, hey, we just try to veer a satellite off course and then it disrupt yeah. communications or whatever? The best distinction I can think of, which is in, in both books, is to distinguish between hard or soft kill. Yep. So hard kill basically refers to things that physically destroy a satellite. So that could yeah. be anything from a nuclear bomb uh, detonated um, in orbit um, that destroys satellites through the fireball, if it's caught within the fireball, or over time fries the electronics of a mm -hmm. satellite through the enhanced radiation that it pumps yeah. out. So it, you know, it makes it physically unusable. Uh, so that's you know, physical destruction. Um, but also you can have um, just explosives, so you can um, throw in like a, just bits of shrapnel, so um, so like an explosive weapon system. And the Soviets 
um, and the Americans looked at those in the Cold War and the Soviets uh, flight tested uh, a few of those systems uh, called, uh, one of them was called the Satellite Destroyer or IS. Um, and then you can also have kinetic ramming systems. So uh, a missile sends up um, a kill vehicle and basically goes and rams a target satellite and, and then it goes off of orbit. blows it okay. to the reams. okay okay um so those are hard kill where you physically destroy a satellite mm. um soft kill refers to electronic warfare or radio jamming which which i mentioned um and that's basically making the radio frequency of a satellite that it uses unusable um Another thing you can do is spoof a signal. So you implant false data or false signaling to a radio system so that it gives off the wrong coordinates, mm-hmm. for example, for GPS. So GPS spoofing means giving false navigation data. And that's the the you know plot device in the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, where um, you know, a, a mad media mogul, can <laughs> imagine one of those? Um basically sending a British warship into Chinese territorial waters by spoofing the GPS signals. Um, And the British ship defended itself thinking it was in international waters and triggering a massive sort of nuclear crisis between China and Britain. Um, And that's, that's possibly the only realistic depiction of anything we could call space warfare in a James Bond film. Um, So, you know, we're not looking at Roger Moore in tinfoil anytime soon, (laughs) as in the film Moonraker. Yeah. Um, But um, and then another another major aspect is uh, of soft kill is cyber warfare or computer network operations, Uh computer network attacks. Um, and, and Russia has been doing that against Ukraine. So the Russians hacked into the Viasat system. Um, so that was um, Ukraine's, oh, wow. I think, command and control satellite um, service because uh, they were buying it off off the market. Um, and the Russians did some cyber attacks and broke a lot of moderns early on in that conflict. So, um, so there are lots of instances of radio jamming and cyber warfare or cyber intrusions with satellite control systems mm-hmm. um they've apart from what's happened in ukraine um i'm not aware of major instances in times of open hostilities otherwise but i wouldn't be surprised if there'll be if there's a lot of electronic warfare in various proxy conflicts during the cold war or various wars um that have happened in the last 40 50 years it's just that there's not a lot out there on it because electronic warfare is massively sensitive mm-hmm. and the basic principles are known, but the details are so sensitive. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, those of us working out in, in public and, you know, outside uh, the intelligence communities on this and the military communities, we just don't get the details on, on this. Um, so, so that's sort of what space warfare can look like. You can also attack the ground stations as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so rather than sending, 30 missiles against 30 gps satellites you could maybe just um bombard three of the major gps control stations now i don't know how effective that would be um i I would imagine that there are even more backups (laughs) to gps control systems but you can try and attack the control stations instead on the ground so if you're going up against a country that has quite a small space infrastructure and they might have bottlenecks in the control Mm -hmm. stations they may only have maybe one backup station well if you obliterate both with small nuclear weapons bangos their space infrastructure but then do you want to use nuclear weapons that's another debate but yeah, it's it's the realms of possibility that we have to think about when it comes to 
not just space warfare, but space infrastructure in a time of warfare. Yeah. Okay. So then let's, to, to summarize kind of original sin, um, the global space age was not the result of inevitable inevitable force of technological progress. Space is not a spe special place separated from terrestrial politics. People who want to make things better have to accept the realities of the original sin of space technology, its uh, militarized past, if you will. And quote, but I, re I really love this. Uh, Those wishing away or ignoring the very real and very powerful military and security interests in Earth orbit will ensure their own irrelevance in the halls of power. So very, I love it. Love it. Coming, coming with the, with the hits, Blevin. Um, but I guess, is there any other maybe overarching thing that you would like people to, to learn about the book? I think we kind of covered a, a lot of it. Um, yeah. Um, no, I think, I think, I think generally speaking, I mean, space has something for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good and bad. Um, so, um, but also, you know, you know the, the the book and you know this discussion you know reflects it where you know it looks at you know the nastier side of human politics and yeah, yeah. you know the 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 negative things and the negative consequences and you know i do say in the book you know you know i'm not saying we should defend space you know i'm not saying you know we have to stop doing these things in space it's that um you know you can still enjoy the things you like about space like by all means, if people enjoy the, you know, the images we get from space telescopes, mm -hmm. absolutely enjoy them. But um, when you then stray into thinking, oh, well, this is why, you know, space, the space age is so fantastic and amazing because it's given us all these things like, well, no, it's there's a bigger story to it than just that. But yeah, by all means, like enjoy that, uh, enjoy the things you like about space. But, you know, the International Space Station is a classic example where yeah. people have such a positive image of it. And yet it was a product of 1990s geopolitics and cutthroat geopolitical bargaining. So um, in, in the book, I, I talk about how Russia broke a deal it had made with India to sell cryogenic engine technologies uh, in order to get onto the International Space Station program because the United States made it part of the deal. Um, and the Americans basically bankrolled Russian involvement in the space station to stop Russian rocket scientists and missile engineers from taking jobs in other countries that the Americans did not want to develop missile technology, such as Iran, Iraq, North Korea, Egypt, mm -hmm. Libya. Wow. Um, so there was, you know, you know, power politics in the International Space Station. And Europe and Japan were often quite, you know, frustrated, to put a polite word on it, with how the Americans got the Russians on board because they saw the Russians were getting all this money and they'd been asking for financial support for many, many years. And, oh, here you are giving it to your old enemy. What's what's going on here? <laughs> what's going on here? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, so, so again, I'm, I'm not like saying who's right or wrong in those discussions because those, that's the politics of the International Space Station. So, um, so, so what goes on in space, like by all means, enjoy the things you want to enjoy about space. But if you want to understand the bigger picture, you have to look at the way the space age has actually happened from the political, military and industrial perspective, which I hope Original Sin gets the big picture right enough uh, about. 
Yep. Well, well summarized. Um, and I guess the last, last two questions, cause I know we're kind of coming to the end of this. Uh, how do you take all of this research, academia, writing, et cetera, into your work uh, for consulting on space policy? Cause I know you'd kind of do some stuff for institutions, including the UK parliament, European space agency, and uh, you know, us born and bred the Pentagon. So what, how do you kind of uh, navigate that? Like uh, of being kind of an academic, uh, a person who's really writing about this stuff, but then also getting giving kind of uh, consulting, I guess, that are, is more normative. I don't know. I'm not in the consulting game. So maybe you can kind of just talk talk a little bit about that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess because, I mean, it's, it's not that different, to be I've honest. I've done one because... policy brief for a class, but then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <it's... laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm not saying I'm representative, really, but in terms of what I do, because a lot of my work is quite conceptual mm-hmm. and theoretical or talking about big picture stuff um as opposed to narrow sort of policy stuff unless i've deliberately prepared for something specific um i mean i just still see it as um people ask me what i think about a particular thing and then i give them an honest answer to the best of my ability and knowledge so i so so in the same way where i lecture in my modules and i talk with my students it's like well here's you know, I can give you an informed opinion and an informed research-based view on these things. Um, and that's what I do to policymakers as well. Yeah. And and often when it comes to pitching to certain groups, I try to get as much information as possible because then I think, mm, am I doing the equivalent of 18-year-olds at school or first years at university, third years? or postgraduates, or perhaps PhD researchers, or something like that, or, or other, you know, um, a- academics. So, um, so there's not that much uh, of, of a difference, really, because it, it comes back to just me saying what I think about things. Interesting. I love it. Uh, Which I, I so... guess is a very reductionist way of... <laughs> I mean, whatever. But, but I'm, I'm not very good with corporate speak. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're tailoring it to, to, to who's your audience. That's great. So I guess the second to last question then, what what's kind of next for you? What are some pr- future projects? I mean, this was a behemoth of a book, I'm assuming, uh, a lot of research, uh, book tours, etc. So what what kind of uh, is, is, is your future for 2023? Oh, I mean, well, I need to get through the next few weeks were next many weeks of teaching yeah, yeah. <laughs> and administration so i run the master's program here at the university of leicester for international relations um so um so you know that takes up um, yeah. a, lot, a lot of everyday time really and also my undergraduate and master's teaching and phd supervision as well um but um i think after this book now because it came out in quick succession from uh from the first book um i, I need time to sit down and think because i'm not really you know i don't have a clear project and i know there will be a third book at some point but uh you know and there's some stuff rattling around in there but um i think for now i'm I'm, i mean i'm going to be busy doing talks on the book over the next few months now at various places including the oxford literary festival uh, in in a few months as well so if people are there for that i'll I'll be doing a a talk there um but uh yeah i need to sit down and think and uh yeah the the next big project or book hasn't totally materialized yet but it, it eventually will but okay well we'll we'll, co- we'll have you on again uh the next when the next book comes around but um i guess it'll so, be about space okay well naturally <laughs> you're invited so <laughs> um okay so the last question and this is a little bit of an interesting one here um usually i always ask kind of my guests 
like uh, what they would kind of say um, if they were experiencing the overview effect, you know, seeing the Earth from the International Space Station or uh, the moon or something like that. Because um, I did think it was a very powerful kind of uh, tool, I guess, in my thinking uh, of sorts. But now I've kind of come around to being way more critical about it. And I think um, before I had very much of a, like most uh, a naive kind of frontierism of, oh, we're pushing, you know, human thought and endeavor and whatnot, et cetera. And then now I really um, kind of the only thing I think that space or overview effect is useful for is then looking back at earth, you know, keeping ourselves grounded. How do we think about this? How do we live, et cetera? So uh, you, you have some, some interesting words for the overview effect uh, quote. I take aim at the mindlessness of the overview effect mantra and the madness of Martian libertarians. So I'm with you on the madness of Martian libertarians. So then let's maybe put on our, our critical hat. And so I won't, I won't take the mindlessness, but how can we be critical of the overview effect and, and like what we think about it uh, and maybe uh, expand and, and kind of evolve that first type of thinking that was, was very present um, in uh, you know, the start of this global space age. So let's just talk about the overview effect and how can we yeah. be critical. So, so the mindlessness really comes about. Um, it's, it's, it is that mantra of believing that such a powerful force exists. So, it's not about people who genuinely believe what people say the over effect, the overview effect is. So, yeah, if you have your universalist views, where yeah, you know, the planet is so fragile, or shouldn't we all get along? Like people genuinely believe that. That's not the target here. It's it's the belief that if you go into outer space, you will believe this. It's like <laughs> something a little bit cultish to that, isn't it? But also, it's bad social science. Yeah. Um, and it reflects the fact that it's often scientists and engineers who talk about it who don't mm -hmm. do social science research. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, for one thing, you know, the people that go into space are from particular backgrounds. Yep. And, um, you know. It's not a representative sample of people. Yeah, what is it? Uh, Six hundred around of say ten million humans since the start of you know two million years ago. There's been ten million humans yeah. existed, so and, and then 600. and then and that's before then you look at the the sort of the political and economic and social infrastructure oh, structures around mm -hmm. doing that because lots of people um, trade the public image based on space, and that's a public image. Uh, and a popular image people want to portray about, you know, this is great and blah, blah, blah. And there's a, there's some people I would wonder, you know, are they genuine beliefs or not? Because they're cashing in on a certain image about the astronaut um, to yeah. for their own financial gain. Not not everyone, but, you know, there are some people I think, oh, really? Um, but then, uh, and then also, I mean, there will be people who already believe that without needing to go into space or they go into space and they're, they're just saying what they already believed. Um, so you have to demonstrate that mm -hmm. you have people who are totally hostile to the idea and then become zealots of it. Or also and also not every astronaut does have those feelings or doesn't, you know, evangelize about mm -hmm. it either. So, um, so it's not like you've surveyed every possible, every astronaut either that's gone and done it and had a clear definition of also what the overfact view actually is. So so the mindlessness is about the bad social science of claims about the power and the influence of the supposed overview effect. Um, because there's so much, um, I guess, why well, there's a lot of cynicism about space. Um and a lot of people who work on space who are interested in space only are the talk 
to other people who are oh, interested yeah. in space inside baseball to themselves yeah, yeah, like yeah. have they actually spoken to people who don't really care about anything to do with space and a lot of the people who grew up with apollo and have this amazing rose tinted view of apollo seem to forget that most us public opinion was actually against a crewed lunar mission for most of the uh, apollo project years and also it became a, a, an object of derision <laughs> you know we've all heard the phrase well, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't do this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's become yeah. an object of derision. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, or, 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 and lots of people question, oh, well, that laboratory in space is a bit of a white elephant, isn't it? So, so, and I think it just, I don't know, it's it's just not convincing and it's bad social science. So that's where that mindlessness line comes from. Well, I mean, now we're thinking a little bit more critically about the overview effect and and obviously the material global politics of, uh, of astropolitics. So, um, I think that's all the time. I think it's that we we went through a lot. I think this was very useful, uh, especially for me. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure to you know thank you for your research, your eclectic mind, and obviously for coming on Conversations Blethen. Really appreciate yeah, it. Th- thank you very much for having me, and uh, look forward to another conversation in the future. What a thought-provoking conversation with Blethen Bowen. Lots of great topics on important issues within the context of power, technology, and outer space. Make sure to pick up his book, Original Sin. And we thank Blethen for coming on Conversations. Before we go, please like this video if you find the conversation interesting. Leave a comment about your favorite part of the episode or who we should interview next. And please subscribe for more eclectic content. Until next time, Ad Astra.